So I'm going to ask you, invite you to take your Bibles now and turn with me to this familiar psalm, Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Well, by now you know this is Thanksgiving week. It is, uh, in particular, uh, and specifically, Thanksgiving week in America. And uh, this is a good thing. Someone said, maybe not for the turkeys among us, but it is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. You'll find those words in the Bible, Psalm 92 and verse 1. The Thanksgiving holiday is a distinctly American tradition, and I think that because of that, there's something to be proud about when you think about just how much the average American has of life's blessings. I want you to hear this and think with me a little bit. Uh, It has been calculated that if you were figuratively to reduce the whole world's population uh, and place them in one town represented by just 1,000 people. Are you with me? We're condensing what we can say about the whole world's population and we're reducing it in figurative terms to 1,000 representative people living in one town. Listen to these statistics then that we would discover. Again, 1,000 people. Uh, 46 of those people would be Americans. 46 out of 1,000 would be Americans. And the other 954 would represent all the rest of the world's populations. Every Nation, tribe, tongue, color, country, sect, and so forth. Now listen, stay with me here. Those 46 Americans would receive half of the income of the whole city. And the other one half would be divided among the remaining 954 people. The 46 Americans would have a life expectancy of 75 plus years. I hesitated to give that statistic this morning, lest some of you become a little nervous, but that's sort of how it averages out. The 46 Americans would have a life expectancy of 75 plus years, while the other 954 would live less than 40 years. The Americans would have 15 times as many possessions per person as all the rest of the people. The vast number of Americans will indulge appetites way above their daily food requirements. Yes, some of us are living proof of that. While the rest of the people would never have what is called a balanced meal. And this next statement I find particularly uh, embarrassing. It's, It's a real ouch. The dogs and cats 
of the American people today have a better balanced diet than most people around the world. If the Bible says, and it does, that it is a good thing to give thanks to the Lord, then how evil a thing it is to have anything less than an attitude of gratitude toward the creator and the sustainer of life, especially for us Americans, wouldn't you say? I want to dwell on the good thing today, the fact that it's a good thing to give thanks to the Lord, but I feel obligated to take a moment more to demonstrate from the scriptures the great sin, the great evil, in fact, of ingratitude. What is involved in forgetting to be thankful. Forgetting to be thankful is not a small matter in the eyes of God. Now, you need not turn to the text, but you will remember that the Apostle Paul, in that great uh, doctrinal epistle of Romans, underscores the awful nature of what theologians call sinful human depravity. And he begins right in the very first chapter to explain how since Adam's rebellion as our human representative and then our own rebellion and sin is something that uh, is truly heinous. It is a slippery slope. Listen to how Paul vividly and even horrifically describes uh, man's downward slide on that slippery slope of iniquity, of idolatry, and even immorality of every kind. Let me read the words. You just listen carefully. Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. God has put a witness in the heart of every one of his creatures that he in fact does exist. Paul goes on with these words. He says, since the creation of the world... God's invisible attributes, the fact that we cannot see him, does not mean that his existence is not very evident all around us. For example, Paul says, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Some of you have heard recent arguments about what is called intelligent design, where even non-Christians who could care less about the book of Genesis telling us how the world came to be are scientifically honest enough to at least look at the world and say, it's pretty hard to believe, guys, that all of this just happened with a big bang. There's an intelligent design, and that's what Romans 1 is talking about. Intelligent design is nothing new. Paul's saying in Romans 1... 
anybody should be able to look at the world around them and conclude that there is a God of eternal power. Now Paul goes on to say, and this is what I want you to hear very carefully, he's describing this slippery slope of man's depravity since the fall. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And this is what blew me away this week, is this next phrase. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. Where does a failure to acknowledge God's existence and a failure to give him thanks, where does it lead? That's what Paul's explaining here. So he moves on. He said they did not give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Oh, professing to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and creepy crawly creatures. I don't think creepy crawly is part of the original text. But do you get the idea? A failure to acknowledge God when the evidence is all around, and then as a result, a failure to give him thanks will lead you down, down, down. Therefore, God gave them over. How horrible a phrase is that? This is part of biblical truth. You want to hear all the truth, right? Not just the good parts, all the truth. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their very bodies would be dishonored among them. I want to suggest to you, it all begins with a lack of thanksgiving. So how important, do you think, is an attitude of gratitude? Let's just say that every darkness of the mind every form of self-indulgent idolatry, every moral perversion has its genesis in the failure, Paul says, to honor God as God and a failure of the creature made by him to live in an attitude of gratitude, to give thanks all the days of their lives. One more dire warning from Scripture, and we'll move on to the more positive aspects of real thanksgiving. But this warning comes from the Bible's forecast of conditions just before the coming judgment of God in the second coming of Christ, what we call the last days. What will it be like? The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and prophetically says, Timothy, this is what it's going to be like before judgment falls on all the world. Let me read his words to Timothy. Paul said, realize this. I can see him almost saying, realize this, young man. Because Timothy was called to be a preacher of God's truth. And he was warning him. He said, you need to realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. 
And then what I'm about to read to you, you will have an abundance of day, this period of time, this day's example, all spread out before you in your Sunday newspaper. Should you sit down with that this afternoon? We're living in these last days. We have been living in the last days ever since Christ went back to the Father and promised to come again. Somehow, though, I like to think that we must therefore be living in the last of the last days. Now, maybe there's some last, last, last days to come, but we're certainly somewhere here on the timeline. And here's what Paul describes that it will be like in our neighborhood before the return of Christ. See if it's not coming to pass. Here's what he wrote. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful. There'll be no thanksgiving. Right after the word ungrateful, comes the description, the word, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You say, what a list of horrible things. So right there in the middle of that horrid list of big-time sins in these last days is the evil of being ungrateful. Quite apparently then, it is not only a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. May I suggest that it is a fairly dangerous thing to live in an attitude of self-sufficient ingratitude. God is coming to judge the unthankful. And he will judge the unthankful with no less wrath than that which he will pour out among those who are also lovers of self, haters of good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And yet, did you know with all of that warning, that there is a biblical statistic which suggests that only one in ten people ever really thank the Lord sincerely from the heart. And you say, Pastor, where do you find math like that? in the Bible. Well, again, I won't ask you to turn to the text. I want you open here to Psalm 100. That's the message I had planned to bring at some point uh, this morning. But uh, listen to this uh, true life experience of the Lord Jesus while he was on earth. It's recorded in Luke chapter 17. Here's what we read. While he, Jesus, was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village... Ten leprous men stood at a distance and met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests, because that's what God had said to do in the Old Testament. 
And as they were going, they were cleansed. They were healed. Now it says, one of them, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned around and went back to Jesus. Let me read the actual test. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. All right, I'm not going to take the time. Many of you are familiar with what's being said here. He wasn't even numbered among the true people of Israel. He was a Samaritan who came back to say thanks. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? One in ten. And I would suggest to you that that is probably a consistent, sad statistic holding steady for about the last 2,000 years. By the way, it is that text on the ten lepers which goes to the heart of what it means to glorify God. You know, we say that a lot, don't we? Our whole purpose in life is to glorify God. Well, what's involved in glorifying God? Well, many things are involved. But from this text, this is how this man, according to Jesus, was glorifying God. I'll quote it again. He turned back glorifying God. How? With a loud voice. How? He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. It is a God-glorifying activity to thank the Lord for all his benefits. And what a witness this one leper must have been to others all around. How do I know? He spoke with a loud voice. Jesus wasn't hard of hearing. But this man, in giving thanks, just began to give credit within the hearing of others for every good thing in his life, and especially this healing. So what a witness he became. And by the way, there's a lesson there for us. How much more effective a witness may you become to your neighbor, to your family member, to the people you work with, so that when every good thing happens to you, or even in the midst of troublesome times and God gives you grace to endure it, do people hear you say, now I don't necessarily suggest the real loud voice, but are you someone that people hear saying all the time, oh, I thank the Lord. I thank the Lord. I thank God. Do people get the idea from your conversation that God is good? to you because he is and to say so and to give him thanks and with a loud enough voice that others hear is a powerful witness now this leper 
a Samaritan at that may not have been familiar at all with the Hebrew hymnal, uh, the Psalter. Maybe he was, I don't know. But he was certainly an excellent example of Psalm 100's instruction on what it means to have an attitude of gratitude. And that's why I've had you open to this text. Even his loud voice giving thanks is is somehow illustrative, isn't it, of the psalm's opening verse. Look at how the psalm opens. Uh, The very literal New American Standard that I often use begins with the translation this way, from the Hebrew to the English. Shout joyfully to the Lord. Uh, You know that I have, uh, in my life, a close association with two teenagers. I'm always supposed to say two wonderful teenagers. Uh, They also live at 440 Edward Street. More or less, they live there. Uh, And so often, I think of how they hear their poor father or mother say, Turn it down! (laughs) Right? Turn it down! I can't hear myself think with that noise! Even if at that point they're trying to convince me that that's actually music. But, But here the Bible says, listen to this. I watch my kids take advantage of it. The Bible says when it comes to an attitude of gratitude, you know what the father of the household says to his children? Turn it up! Turn up the volume! Shout! Make a joyful noise to the Lord! Apparently, God delights in the sounds, even the loud sounds of the whole earth. Declaring his glory by giving him thanks. Let's take a closer look at this Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is commanding God's praise. Now it is a psalm for thanksgiving. It's my conviction that the more familiar a passage of scripture is to Christians. And this is a familiar psalm, isn't it, to most of you. For that very reason, those certain passages of Scripture, I think, deserve a closer examination than we usually afford them. You know, we begin to hear the words of Psalm 1, and how blessed is the man that walketh not, and we say, oh yeah, I know that. (laughs) Or Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I know that. Well, these are the passages I think the Lord would have us especially pay attention to. I'll read the psalm now, and I'm going to employ, in this case, the beautiful King's English of 1611, the King James Version. Because, after all, uh, wouldn't many of you say this morning, that's how you actually memorized all five verses of this psalm. You know, I use some of the more modern translations, but whenever I'm just quoting Scripture spontaneously... It always comes out as the 1611 King James Version because that's what I grew up with. And somehow, Psalm 100, just, well, I just, not everyone has to agree. I think it should be read from the King James Version. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves, we are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be 
thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endureth to all generations. It doesn't get much better than this. Let's dig for some of the treasure that's here. And my prayer is that we will be more prepared than ever, not only for this week's Thanksgiving, but for each day's attitude of gratitude. Verse by verse, but I assure you in a timely fashion. Verse 1, I want you to know, is a Hebrew imperative. Uh, That means it comes to us in the language of command. God speaking through David has God saying, do this. It is a command. Make a joyful noise. And I just want to remind you that because God is God, when he says jump, your only right response would have to be how high. It is a command. How well the scriptures know our wayward hearts. It's a little like uh, when we say, I shouldn't have to tell you this, but you need to remember. Now, I have to tell you, I love it when the Christian life, that is my own walk with the Lord, expresses itself with a certain uh, spontaneity. I mean, there's joy when some of the things that God has asked me to be and asked me to do, just kind of, you know, I don't even have to think about it. It just sort of happens with joyful uh, spontaneity. I love it when that happens. But I have to be honest with you, and you need to be honest with your own heart this morning before the Lord, that more often than not, we have to be told what to do. So God puts what we are supposed to do spontaneously in writing. Now, how humbling is that? But after all, humility is a good thing for the perpetually proud and the ungrateful sinners that the Bible knows us to be. So God commands it. He writes it down. God also knows that commanding us to do what we are supposed to do anyway is the quickest and most sure route to developing the right kind of habits in our lives. And that's why over and over and over again, both Old and New Testament, but especially the Psalms, is commanded, thank Him, thank Him, thank Him. Because God knows that if He will command us thusly, and if we will but obey, that sooner or later it becomes a life-giving, godly habit so that we keep making this sacrifice of praise. What is that? The Bible says, The fruit of your lips giving thanks to Him, listen, for all things and in all things. And then someday you suddenly realize you're a more thankful person. And over time it becomes truly more spontaneous. It's sort of like uh, a child receives... Uh, a small gift from someone. Maybe grandma's come to visit. 
And Grandma has brought a surprise in that little bag of hers, and she hands it to young Charlie, and Charlie receives it and starts to tear it open. And the mother says, Now, Charlie, what do you say? And Charlie learns by being commanded over time to say thank you. And so the reward of the parent is one hopes that by the time they are older and someone does something nice or gives a gift, should the parent be present, no problem, folded hands, doesn't have to say a word, but the child says, thank you. We have a really, uh, one of our great kids, I mean, a specially gifted child that runs around here in the church. And I remember, I, I better not say him or her, I'm going to give, because we have few children, you might figure this out. But anyway, uh, this special child, and I, I said to him or her, uh, my, you, you really look so nice today. You know, you are just so, well, if I say handsome, I guess you'll know it was a little boy. You're just so handsome. And then he showed me his, his Sunday school project work, and I said, you know, you're really smart too. Why? You're just a handsome, very intelligent young man. And you know what he said? He said, I know. <laughs> it wasn't quite the answer that I was expecting. By the way, he does know that. And I'm sure that he's being taught as well that being handsome and being smart are two really wonderful gifts that come from the Creator. So he ought to say thank you. Now, verse 2 says, Serve the Lord. How? Class? Serve the Lord with gladness. And the second part of the verse, come before him with singing. This is gratitude in work clothes. This is the word serve. This has something to do with thankfulness and gratitude. In fact, I want you to know now, I have this on absolutely no authority at all that uh, this is the text that no doubt inspired the lovely song in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Like I say, I have this on absolutely no authority whatsoever. But it goes like this. Just whistle while you work. I can't even whistle. Put on that grin and start right in to whistle loud and long. Just hum a merry tune. You can join in anytime you want. Just to do your best and take a rest and sing yourself a song. There's this counsel even when it comes to having a clean house. Are you listening, men? <laughs> My wife's going back to work. The man cleans the house. No, not all the time. But here's the advice of the song. And as you sweep the room, imagine that the broom is someone that you love. And soon you'll find you're dancing to the tune. Just do your best and take a rest and sing yourself. No, I have a better line. Sing him a happy, joyful song. That's what verse 2 is saying. Whistle while you work. Sing to the Lord while you serve. I, I sound much better singing in the shower. I haven't learned how to duplicate that here on Sunday mornings. 
Sometimes it's where you sing that underscores whether or not it's sung with a heart of gratitude. I'm thinking of another place. And the music that rang through the dungeon halls probably were never sweeter than would have come from any cathedral. There was a certain Paul and Silas who were beaten till their backs bled, all because they dared to speak of Jesus. And they were thrown into a dungeon prison. And we read in the scriptures that in that serving of the Lord, what did they do? They sung hymns of praise through the night. So when gratitude becomes a hard thing to maintain in difficult times and circumstances, when serving the Lord becomes more of a wearisome thing than a joyful thing, it's time, frankly, to get out your hymnal. By the way, we'll be doing that next Sunday night. We're going to dedicate an hour to basically singing together. Maybe we'll whistle too. I hear we're having dessert on top of it. God knows what we need. We, we need to sing, even in or maybe especially in the dark times, right? And that's why he gives us verse 2. Sing while you serve. Whistle while you work. Verse 3. Verse 3. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. You know what I've always thought when I get to verse 3 of Psalm 100 This text in the Bible had to be Darwin's worst nightmare. (laughs) Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Forget that whole self-made man routine. Who is God? Well, the text says it is the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, if you have a Bible worth its price. All four letters are capitalized. That's signifying to us in the English that this is no one less than Yahweh himself. The Lord himself, and when that language is used like that, it means the Lord himself all by himself. This is wonderful in-your-face truth. Because what he's saying Know this, that the Lord himself is God. The Lord all by himself is God, is saying to us, he is God, and guess what? I am not. It is he that has made us, not we ourselves. And I've always said the problem with a self-made man or woman is that their God is just way too small. Now notice, we are not only not God... What are we? We are, in fact, pretty vulnerable, pretty dumb sheep. The good news is we have a shepherd, and he is just not any shepherd. Look what it says, verse 3. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This is an invitation to do something every day in your life to develop and cultivate this habit of an attitude of gratitude. Let me give it to you. We are the sheep of his pasture. Put yourself, beloved, each new day, see yourself in the pastoral scene of David's 23rd Psalm. See yourself drinking safely 
at still waters for your thirsty soul. See yourself feeding in lush green pastures of the truth of his word as you graze upon the gems there. See yourself anointed with soothing oil, a cup running over, fears and enemies dispelled, countless restorations and revivings of the soul. He restoreth my soul. All the while, seeing yourself there, knowing that surely, the grand conclusion of Psalm 23, surely you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Take all of that in and do that, beloved, and just go ahead and try not to have an attitude of gratitude. Verse 4. Very interestingly enough, the the picture language makes a quick change. The metaphors. Verse 4, we move from the pastoral scene of shepherd and sheep to the majestic courts of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is a falling down on your knees before the sovereign of the universe gratitude. It's the picture of his scepter being extended to you. For where the scepter is not extended, there's nothing but fearful judgment, even death. But his scepter has been extended to you. You and I, in Christ, become the VIPs who populate the inner courts of his holy place. It's, look at this invitation. It's incredible. Everybody doesn't get to go in here. Only the blood-bought, only the redeemed. Enter his gates. Come on in with thanksgiving. His courts, his courts, the inner court with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Note, too, that this is a picture of what will be our eternal occupation. Some people tell me sometimes they're a little worried about what they're going to be doing for eternity in all of heaven. Let me tell you how at least it begins. When you first enter through the gate, no other thought or desire will consume you but the giving of thanks. Even poor old dead departed Harry's going to have to wait. I know you're anxious to see the dearest on earth to you. But when you enter there with transformed heart and mind, I suggest to you there will be nothing but the giving of thanks. You will enter his gates with thanksgiving. So understand, this Thursday is just a rehearsal. Every Lord's Day, when you come to praise and thank the Lord, it's just a rehearsal. It's a dress rehearsal. There's no time for turkey here in this scene. Just the delights of giving thanks to him. And it says, blessing his name. Blessing his name. As the once hungry soul is now abundantly satisfied just to be in his presence. You're going to stuff your belly, aren't you, come Thursday? Well, most of you. I am. I'll repent later. But I'm going to get hungry again. Oh, I know, we'll all sit around the table after the second piece of pie and we'll say, oh, I'll never eat again. But you'll eat again. But you enter into these courts. You feast your eyes on the one 
who bought your soul with his own precious blood. And it'll be the giving of thanks, not the taking in, but the giving of thanks, the giving of thanks, the giving of thanks. You won't be able to get enough said. And at the same time, you will discover your soul is stuffed with good things. And you'll never be hungry again. Now finally, verse 5, and it is such a telling verse. The Lord is good. Some people question that. Oh, maybe not directly, but they look at a circumstance, maybe even a horrific one, and they say, How could God, and you fill in the blank, be careful. The scriptures declare the truth about all that God does. He cannot do otherwise. When this text says the Lord is good, it's not talking about the good things he has done. It's talking about his intrinsic nature and character. Did you know that the reason there's a hell and that people will spend eternity there is because God is intrinsically good. Intrinsically good means he is of purer eyes than to not punish the wickedness of men. And in his goodness, he also provides redemption for sinners in Jesus Christ. And so he invites us to embrace Christ with trust and by faith and to do so is to know the goodness of the glories to yet be revealed. To not do so is to know the goodness of God acting in perfect and pure justice. These things are not contradictory, only to the unlearned. Surely we acknowledge the Creator's awesome, even fearful holiness. We will often confess His utter and complete justice. It's a hard thing to do, but we do that because God's word speaks it. It speaks of his impeccable righteousness, of his purer eyes than to countenance evil. And while the angels fold their wings at his holiness, we will tremble at the knowledge of his wrath poured out on all ungodliness. For these glorious attributes of God, I want to suggest for those attributes of God We shall mostly bow in reverential silence, even covering our mouths when every tongue shall be stopped. Did you know that there will not only be praise in heaven, there will be times of utter silence. But then, but then, irrepressible, And only for the redeemed in Christ Jesus will come the rising anthem that magnifies the glory of the finished cross work of Christ. We will behold his awesome holiness and cover our mouths even as the angels fold their wings. But when the cross of Christ is lifted before us, why even the stones would have to cry out in praise. And surely we will. There's three monuments to God's grace there in verse 5. And with this I'll close. There's the goodness 
of the Lord. The Lord is good. That's his intrinsic fundamental nature. The second monument is to God's grace. The loving kindness of the Lord. The King James divines translate the Hebrew as his mercy. Now you tell me, folks, how long will God's mercy endure with the likes of you and me? You tell me from the verse. That's right. It says it is everlasting. How long will God's mercy be extended to you, his child? With all of your countless failings, sometimes it's even the same sins over and over and over again. But having placed his mercy upon you, it's everlasting. It will bring you, he will bring you all the way home to glory. And then the third monument of God's grace here in verse 5, his faithfulness to his own word. What the 1611 translators called the truth that endureth to all generations. That means that his truth is still truth in a generation that's telling us there is no such thing as truth. His truth is still truth today. God is faithful in all his ways right on up to this very moment, November the 18th in the year of our Lord, 2007, and his truth will still be there for us on the other side of all our tomorrows. He's not going to change. He cannot. And he will not deny himself or he is faithful so I wonder do you think that uh, we could just start here that his goodness his mercies his enduring truth are reasons enough to live out the rest of your days with an attitude of gratitude